Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. to be catapulted into the response in January 2020 and actually be sitting on public health advisory and policy committees was just such a privilege. And the Australian community should be aware and so grateful that, you know, those committees, all the chief health officers met for two hours every day of the week, weekday, weekends. And so just to see how seriously our decision makers took the constant ongoing review of evidence, how that was fed into policy. We talked to colleagues overseas and they were just amazed, really, to hear how much thought and attention went into that response. Uh, hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia and the host. And with me is one of the, undoubtedly, I think, the most busy women in Australia. <laughs> That's right, Jodie, isn't it? That is not an award I wish to I wish to claim. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> there are plenty of them, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's 100% <laughs> true. With me on the show is Jodie McVernon, who is a professor and director of epidemiology at the Doherty Institute. And I'm sure if you've been following the news this week, uh, and most of you will have, uh, you'll be very aware of what Jodie's been doing over, well, really, it's over the whole life of COVID, isn't it? It's not just it's not just what's happened this week. We'll get to this week. But actually, I want to roll back. I want to start back where, uh, where when you and I had our first conversation, which was... A uh, long, short time ago. It feels like a decade <laughs> or more ago. Like, it's, it's sort of astonishing, actually, how long ago yeah. that feels. But anyway, mm. uh, I first met Jodie uh, last year when I was researching a quarterly essay about the opening stages of the COVID pandemic in Australia. And Jodie is the go-to person because... Doherty have been doing uh, a lot of the the very important modelling around the public health responses to this crisis and also because she's an internationally regarded expert in this field. But anyway, when we spoke, one thing that's really stuck uh, with me out of that conversation, uh, out of the many interesting things you said, was about lockdowns. You mentioned Mm -hmm. to me at that time that basically lockdowns were an entirely new part of the pandemic response toolkit, that democracies around the world had seen uh, China lock down Wuhan in the opening stages of the crisis. Then governments around the world thought, oh, okay, (laughs) maybe we can do that. And that, oh, we thought, oh my goodness, we could never well, well, do exa- that. What are we no, going to no, no, do? Well, exactly. <laughs> this is the point, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and uh, and it sort of morphed from something that was 
not part of anyone's pandemic response kind of manual to something that's so front and centre now, in uh, certainly in Australia and in some other countries still, in terms of the the management of the pandemic in terms of reducing fatalities and infections and all of that sort of stuff. So we'll just start there. It's a bit whimsical, but did you see that coming? Mm. Did you see the, the the sort of revolution we've lived through in the last 12 months coming? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we've talked before. I mean, I've been involved in pandemic preparedness for 15 years and all of us thought about, you know, short, sharp epidemics that would, might be terrible but would go yep. away. And this thing just doesn't go away. And so, um, yeah, going back to really medieval plague-style interventions like, you know, locking off cities was not something we envisaged. And, you know, and, and very early on, uh, Australia and other countries got a lot of flack from WHO for closing their yes. borders to other yes. countries because that was never, you know, that was something that was absolutely forbidden under the international health regulations that countries had to maintain that connection. So, you know, that had to be a huge conceptual mind shift for WHO and then within countries, the way in which, well, affluent countries were able to lock down their populations, mm. you know, it really was a, a very, very different intervention. And of course, in many parts of the world, that's just not even conceivable because people would starve to death. So the fact that we even can do that, or we're able to do that to protect our populations clearly causes economic hardship for many. I think a large part of Australia's success was all of the financial supports that surrounded that. But even so, you know, the fact that we're able to use that tool, um, you know, isn't universally a given No, either. that's right. And that's a really important point to make. Um, let's move now just because we're going to, we'll, we'll go on a bit of a journey with this conversation, but let's, <laughs> let's just turn now to the task of economic modelling during a pandemic or uh, which is mm. uh, where you've been throughout this whole crisis. Why don't, because a lot of people uh, listening to the show will have not much of a real concept of what of what that is, how you go about it, even why it matters. So just for mm. people who are, who are not experts like yourself, Let's just explain to the listeners uh, what you've been doing, really, for the last 12 months before we get to this week. <laughs> okay. So I'll just briefly correct you there. You did say we're economic modellers, which no. we're not. So we're epidemiologic modellers. Yes. That's yes, okay. Sorry, That's no, right. no, I just don't want to overstate no, no, my no. capacity. No, 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 you're quite right. You're quite right. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. So, so look, um, this sort of epidemiologic modelling thing, you know, there was a paper published in 1927 that beautifully described the methods that we use, so they're very cutting edge. Um, but basically, um, infectious diseases, the way they grow and decline, can be categorised by a simple set of mathematical equations that just describe the way nonlinear things grow and an epidemic will saturate and then collapse, a bit like a bushfire comes and burns through fuel and passes mm. on. And we develop models by thinking about infections and the way people experience them essentially in three states. And then there's lots of sort of fancy contortions on that. But, you know, if an infectious disease comes into your community, your home, your country, any individual there can be characterised as whether or not they're susceptible to it. Can they actually catch it? Are they vulnerable? Are they currently infected and infectious? And uh, how long does, then the, does the infection take to clear? After which point they often become recovered and immune for at least some period mm. of time, or sometimes they actually don't become immune and can just keep getting reinfected all the time. And these very simple states and the equations that 
describe the transitions between them. Their ordinary differential equations um, can be used to characterise epidemics and outbreaks in quite useful ways. And then obviously in the last you know, decades with increasing computational capacity and other things, we've been able to make these much more complicated to be more realistic representations of populations and the way people move and mobility and a whole range of other things that we know are actually very important in the way infections spread. But they're all based around this very important SIR concept. And within that, we can, you know, introduce vaccinated states where people might be less susceptible or if they're lucky and it's an amazing vaccine like smallpox, they might become lifelong yeah. immune, which is why, you know, smallpox was able to eradicate a disease and most vaccines can't. Um, so, you know, these very sort of simple mathematical constructs let us think through the underlying processes that lead to the spread of infection and, and explain why epidemics stop. Um, and there's a very important characteristic that comes out of models called the reproduction mm. number, which determines for each individual who is infected, how many children, how many offspring uh, will they produce? So how many secondary cases on average does a single infected person make? And that and some other key parameters, you know, governing the rates between these different compartments will determine how many people become infected per unit time. Uh, we have other characteristics of how quickly that happens that also, you know, determine the rate of epidemic growth. And then depending on how long people are infected and infectious, you know, how many people are sitting around there in that class and then when they become immune or, or recovered, you know, how long does that last? And these just quite simple straight state transitions can describe a whole lot of different infectious diseases and let us explore, particularly in uncertain times when we haven't seen an infection before, if we can get some of these early growth characteristics and, and timings and things sorted out, we can put them into models and then try to project forward and think, you know, with all the evidence we have, what might we expect to happen here, which is what we were doing back at the start of 2020. Yeah, beautifully summarised. Now let's let's land on the latest project, which is the one that surfaced this week. So what was that about? Sure. So it certainly felt back like the start of 2020. <laughs> exactly. I don't think we ever left, like just quietly. But anyway, no, go on. Yeah. <laughs> so really what that was about was saying, you know, and I've never been happier to be wrong about something in my life, was, you know, all of these lockdowns and plague interventions and things, which were the only way we had to control COVID last year, uh, are now, we're now in this incredible situation where, you know, within a year of a new infectious disease emerging, we actually had been able to start rolling out safe and effective yeah, vaccines I, to prevent their well, spread. Well, that's the other thing. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to disrupt your flow, but when you and I mm. spoke last year, that was a massive mm. hypothetical, like whether or not we would mm. get, well, a vaccine at all and a yep. vaccine within the period of time that we've got it, let alone many different vaccines. Anyway, go on, as you were. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, you know, and without vaccines, there was no way out of the gilded cage we were sitting in last year. You know, I mean, Australians as a community and our political decision makers put us in this incredible situation of avoiding, um, you know, the catastrophic outbreaks and deaths that were being seen in so many parts of the world. And by the end of 2020, I still, you know, I really struggled to get my head around that difference of how we were not there. Yeah. To me, that was just extraordinary. Yeah. But then, you know, where do we go next? And, and you know, in the second half of last year, a lot of us were, were looking around and saying, well, this is great where we've got to, but how do we get out? And without vaccines, we didn't have a way out. We just had to keep shutting our borders forever because none of us had been infected and we were all still fully susceptible. Mm. So we were a thoroughly vulnerable population. And what vaccines have given us the capacity to do is to get, you know, from that susceptible state through to some kind of resistant immune state 
without all the infection piece in the middle and all of the consequences of that. You know, so Australia obviously has been rolling out its campaign and like all other countries and in line with WHO guidance and ethical principles, you know, in that early rollout focused on the people most at risk of severe outcomes and death and protecting our health system, you know, protecting healthcare workers and aged care workers and other key workers and, you know, special populations, particularly, you know, First Nations and other groups came on relatively early into the program um, because at very low levels of vaccine coverage, Direct protection is is what you can mm. do. It's it's you know you give people a vaccine, it protects them, and really over that period too, the evidence became stronger and stronger from international observations that these vaccines would were doing what every manufacturer dreams of. They were actually preventing people from becoming infected, mm. so they couldn't be infectious to others. And even once they became infected, because you know vaccines aren't perfect, they also were less able to spread the virus to other people. And, you know, to my mind, the the test grounds for that were kind of the toughest battleground ever. The the evidence that the vaccines reduced transmission was in lockdown households in the UK. Mm -hmm. And those of us who've been locked down with family members, you know, I mean, it's great to have company in lockdown. I would hate to be alone, but, you know, we're pretty intensely in each other's faces all the time. And in that situation, vaccines were able to halve the risk of onward transmission. So I think that's a pretty stringent test. And that was really exciting to all of us because it meant that we could then harness the power that many vaccines have, which is not just to stop people who've become infected getting sick, like a drug Mm. would, but actually to reduce that onward spread of infection Mm. and reduce the reproduction number uh, across the whole population. And that's really where, you know, at this stage of the program, having sort of, you know, got through those initial phases and now looking to where does this vaccine take us in terms of being able to reopen society without the risk of these rapidly catastrophic outbreaks, you know, we really needed to refocus on how can these vaccines get us to a a point and how can we use vaccines strategically to make sure we maximise our chances of reducing that transmission. And so in the latest work, uh, which is sort of plotting that path to whatever COVID normal looks like, basically, well, the work speaks to a slight recalibration in the program uh, because in the early phases, we've targeted the vulnerable cohorts who are older Australians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your work points to some benefit potentially in targeting the, uh, what do you call them? The peak transmitters? I think that's what you call them. Um, Which is young adults, uh, people uh, who are contracting and, and spreading the illness so that you're sort of working at it at both ends until such time as the Pfizer lands in the country uh, and you can start sort of talking about hitting those higher vaccination rates that everybody would like to achieve, right? So, I mean, all of that kind of makes intuitive Mm -hmm. sense um, that that's what you do, right? look at the peak transmitters, try and reduce uh, the incidences, fatalities and serious illness by looking at the vulnerable cohorts and then hopefully we all coalesce in the middle there somewhere. Mm. But uh, what struck me sort of reading your work though, and this is why I started in a way with lockdowns, um, and that insight you gave me a year ago, because now they're sort of, you know, ubiquitous and ever present. But I, I would think if I just walked out and onto the street tonight, mm. bailed someone up and asked them what they think is going to happen if we reach these high vaccination mm. rates in Australia, they would say to me, oh, well, no more lockdowns. Hopefully we can go overseas again. Hopefully we can, you know, hug it out with gay abandon, <laughs> you know, all that's right. Like they, I, I, I'm not sort of being superficial No, no, about we it, all need those things. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Hope. 
Yes. Love like hope. I'm sure hope is out Mm. there, right? But what your work says without shoving it in people's faces and resorting to doom and gloom, because that's not really the project, what your work does say is it puts a precautionary principle around that. It's like we are going to be living in the world of public health response for quite a long time, mm. right? Yep. So, the, the, like, I haven't misinterpreted nope. you, have I? So, <laughs> that's it. Yep. yep. Top line message. Just making sure <laughs> I've nailed it. So, so what is that, Jody? What does that mean in practice, mm. right? For and obviously, we don't want to drive the hope out of people. Um, you know, there's a lot of people living in lockdown at the moment who will be literally climbing the walls. Yep. But again, so that we can look at the future through a, a fact based. Mm lens, yep. where, so we know what's coming. Tell us what's coming. So if you remember your quarterly essay, Catherine, as I suspect you did, <laughs> um, it was entitled The End of Certainty. And yes, and yes, I think what we're hoping... And I gave you, I gave you the last I word. know. I gave you the last <laughs> I word. I know. And See? you're not tired of me yet. You're, I'm very <laughs> grateful. But um, look, uh, what I what I think all of us really need is is a pathway towards trying to gain some greater sense of certainty. And that's really what what phase B is looking like. You know, at the moment, if there are five, 10 cases in a state, you know, we lock down major cities because we are at a level where the population is so susceptible still and Delta is a game changer. It is so different. It is twice as infectious as the virus as we started with. We're just not confident that we can stop it taking off like a bushfire, basically. And that's why the short, sharp lockdowns and, you know, always we will have these early proactive public health responses are a a strategy that we know is effective to just instantly break those chains of transmission and and mean that the public health response can totally get on top of it. And we've seen, you know, short, sharp lockdowns very effectively employed um, in a lot of states and territories. And, you know, it's really unfortunate where New South Wales is right now. In the past, they've been able to manage incredible caseloads and keep optimal capacity. This just shows you how, how difficult this virus really is. So mm. what we're looking to head towards is a situation where that doesn't have to be an automatic expectation that we would have to lock down if we had, you know, five, ten cases. It's getting to a point where yeah, we've always recognised that to control this virus was going to be difficult and even without vaccine it was, you know, the combination of the public health response and the social measures and at that stage we were talking about expanding clinical capacity because we, we weren't sure we could hold it. Um, at this yep. point, when vaccines come in, they start to do the heavy lifting. And there's a, a figure in the report and in the slide set that basically sort of showed, you know, you start with a, an agent that's very infectious. If you've got some baseline behavioural measures and you've changed people's way they distance and hand wash and all that sort of stuff. And, and if you've got a really good outbreak response capacity, you know, that effectively brings down the ability of the virus to spread quite a bit. And we showed that for Delta, that kind of brings it down to where we were last year. So it's still highly infectious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you do vaccination, you start bringing that reproduction number, um, we refer to it as transmission potential in the report, down further. And obviously, the more you vaccinate, the more you bring it down. But, um, you know, we also showed that even at 70% coverage, you probably still needed some ongoing low-level measures, you know, density restrictions and caps on numbers in some places and, you know, some low intensity, not particularly economically costly, a little bit inconvenient, but you're not going to die in a ditch over it, measures if you can keep those going, if you can get people to expect that, you know, we're not going back to all night rave parties, but just by doing this bit extra, you can really help to keep everything more stable. 
you know, mm. and let that public health response work. And, you know, we're not saying that if you have a, an under-vaccinated pocket in the population or a group at special risk and an outbreak starts there and the public health team says, we don't think we can hold this, that they might not need a smaller targeted lockdown, you know, to, to protect yep. that group in the community. But it's just this this business of not, you know, every time you start, to, I don't know about you, every time, I, I lived all of last year in two week, in a two-week horizon. And, and suddenly I was shocked to find myself in October. And, um, <laughs> and every time this year when I just start to think ahead, you know, in March I, I had two interstate trips and one in April and I was starting to get excited and then we had a lockdown and it just dissolved. Yes. And every time we start to, you know, start looking ahead, we get, it, it comes back down. And so, you know, it's really can we get to a point where because vaccines are just stopping things taking off so, so quickly because we've got that reproduction number down, you know, we can have more confidence that we can contain things quickly. We don't need to jump to uh, with these lockdowns all the time. Obviously, you know, premiers and public health units and others will still be able to make those decisions if they're appropriate. But it, it just makes our lives a little bit more level. And, you know, I think the really important piece of work here, and there was so much discussion back in 2020 about health versus the economy, and we were ruining the country by stopping people dying, and we should just let them die because, you know, we were holding up the younger generations and all sorts of all sorts of voices out there. But, you know, um, I have to say Stephen Kennedy is my new hero in Treasury. But, you know, <laughs> we, we did our analyses. We said, you know, okay, this is, you know, under these conditions, this is the proportion of the time that if you let cases go, you know, you'd have to impose a strict lockdown to get things back under control and stop this running away from mm. you. And based on those analyses, you know, Treasury went off and said it's a no-brainer. You know, it, people dying <laughs> costs the country money. You know, lockdowns are disastrous financially. And, and also, you know, it was really interesting for me to hear their take on things that, you know, the US had had the worst of all possible circumstances because in this saving the economy, you know, the cases ran away. Um, you know, obviously there were huge health and economic impacts, but also anybody who could possibly afford to stayed home and didn't go outside and didn't yes. spend any money. And it's a disaster exactly. for the economy. Mm. So, you know, mm. actually keeping cases down, stopping people being too frightened to go outside, keeping workplaces functioning and, and society functioning is is good for health and the economy. So... Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. And thanks for laying that out because it's not that you're saying that we're we're going to bounce from lockdowns from here to eternity. Mm. It's it's a more nuanced picture than that. But again, I just think it's good to be transparent with people. It's like um, prudent people may be wearing masks voluntarily Mm. in public for quite some period of time. We won't be able to run at a stranger, you know, grab them and in some enthusiasm of, you know, whatever. Captain, you obviously have Um, a much more exciting life than I do. <laughs> well, 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 no, I'm just saying. It's sort of like, it's really funny, isn't it, how your risk um, sensitivity changes yes. in an event like mm. this because now even still if I see people sort of, you know, just spontaneously hugging on television yeah. or something, I sort of still go, oh, oh. I know. You know. It sort of seems, it seems like activity from another time, yes. right? And I think we're, it's going to be a while before we're back there. I'm not saying this to depress you all. I just think it's good to be transparent about what's happening. Now, also, you picked up on the uncertainty point, which um, is a headspace you and I share. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, uh, and I'll just give you a, an opportunity to explain the rationale to the listeners. Your work, basically the latest one, I'm talking yep. about the one that's hit this week, um, it sort of forecasts what happens over the 
I, you know, I don't know if this time frame's exact, but like six months or so, yeah. right? What happens over the next little bit as the uh, vaccination program gathers speed, hopefully as the Pfizer arrives in the country. Um, but you don't look beyond no. that. Why, why don't you look beyond yeah. that? Okay, so six months was a time frame that we agreed with Treasury. That six months basically kicks off at the point of, you know, we've achieved 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%, and it was just something to follow and say, all right, so let's just say we've got to this level of coverage. An outbreak can't be controlled. It t- starts to take off. What does it look like? So, you know, it's it's a deliberately artificial scenario, but it's making making the case of consequence. And underneath all of these, the vaccine rollout continues. So in every scenario, at some point, coverage becomes 80%, but it shows how important how you set the epidemic up is. So if it starts to grow in a less constrained environment and you end up with thousands and tens of thousands of cases, it's going to be much harder to constrain their growth than if you only are in the tens or hundreds, for example. And we see that in the population. Um, The six-month time frame, let us see how things played out in some of the very high coverage scenarios, like the 80% scenarios, because growth was slow and grumbled along. You know, in 80%, the epidemic hasn't actually peaked at the end of the simulations. And everyone was getting very excited about, oh, you've got 1,300 deaths here and 2,000 deaths there. And we're saying, yeah, well, they haven't quite finished yet. Um, And the reality is that those scenarios showed what happens when you still have some unvaccinated proportion of the population and eventually the virus will catch them. So that's yes. where, you know, small pockets and other things remain really important and, and focusing on that under vaccination is critical. Um, the other thing is, I mean, six months is a very long time frame to be projecting anything with COVID. And these are scenarios, they're not forecasts. But, you know, yes. we've seen in the last six months, we've had alpha, we've had delta. Things do change quickly. We do run a, a scenario just in the papers in some of those early transmission potential tables. You know, what happens if a vaccine escape mutant comes in? the vaccine's less effective against. And, you know, obviously the vaccine does less. We can't discount the possibility that that might happen and we have to be realistic that might happen. But, you know, we thought, well, let's let's look at six months with what we have and see where we go. And obviously then in six months, Treasury can cost, you know, the proportion of time spent in things and how many, you know, billion dollars is that going to cost us a week? And, you know, then we could translate one output to another. Yes, yeah, indeed. And and it's good that you foregrounded, you know, again, what the reality could be as part of the reason for, you know, explaining why you won't go yeah. there in terms of too far ahead, yeah. right? Because there are these, well, we've already got a variant and we'll have more and the consequences of that are, anyway, quite a lot to wrap your mind around. Sufficient um, unto the, the day uh, is the evil thereof. Yes, yes. Um, I wanted just... Uh, you know, you and I could, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a common theme on my pod. I always say I could do, you know, two hours with an interesting person, but seriously, I could do two hours with you, but we, we can't do that. So let's let's just sort of touch down here finally. Um, now, as we said before, right, when you and I spoke a year ago, neither one of us knew the vaccines would arrive, that they would be effective, that there would be a number of them, et cetera. Thank mm. God that happened. But we are not, are we, Jody? looking at an eradication scenario no. for this virus, no. are we? Absolutely not. Right? Again, in terms of being transparent with people, I'm sure there will be people out there who will be hoping somehow this is a smallpox scenario or something like that, that we can get rid of this virus. Not going to happen. That's right. right. And I think a lot of the kind of unhelpful discussion Um, that's been out there in not the press making it happen. There's a lot of epidemiologists out there. But there's been this kind of focus on herd immunity as if it's a yes-no outcome, you know. Um, And what they're talking about is something called an extinction threshold. 
you know, it's about getting that reproduction number to one and holding it there so that if a virus is imported, one person might infect one other person. You, you might get a few grumbling cases, but you won't get an outbreak. And in none of the scenarios that we examined, you know, even at 80%, and to be clear, this is 16 plus as our population base. So 80%, yes. not of the whole population, but 80% of that population. No. People over 16. Yep. We, yes. we never got <laughs> the reproduction number or the transmission potential less than one. Um, yeah. So, you know, what we were left with was more manageable situations and, and hence the requirement for the ongoing low-level measures, you know, particularly until we get to 80%. Yes. So, yeah, and, and, you know, the idea that the vaccine programs failed if we don't get there is clearly ridiculous. Every additional dose of, co yeah, every additional percent of coverage is going to win you something, both in terms of direct yes. protection and at those higher levels, what we're calling indirect protection, the reduction in transmission. And obviously the higher we can get, the better we will all do. You know, we saw in the scenarios that we ran, I think, um, you know, I, I was a little bit wary when we did the first transmission potential scenarios and we were showing these great effects of um, what we had called the all adults scenario where, where we did open up to younger people earlier and the transmission potentials looked great and everyone's going, oh, this is fantastic, you know, and that was sort of the first part of the work and Treasury was taking the numbers off and everyone was getting excited. I'm going, oh, no, 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 but we've got to wait to see what happens with the clinical outcomes. And, you know, in mm. both of those scenarios, coverage in the over 60s was, was very high, you know, in, in the order of 85, 90%, even at the 70% population coverage mark. But what we saw was a halving, you know, of severe outcomes in the 60 plus when we actually reduced transmission. So they were being directly mm -hmm. protected. They were being indirectly protected. Children were being indirectly protected, you know, and in terms of that, uh, obviously a more effective program. But the other really important thing about vaccines and what we see around the world, vaccines have the potential to be a great driver of equity, you know, and if you can stop people who haven't been able to access vaccines or might, you know, be hesitant because of cultural beliefs or other reasons or, you know, there are, there are a whole lot of reasons people might be hesitant about vaccines. And clearly the more people we can bring on board and encourage to be immunised, the better. Some people will have vaccines and they won't actually work. They might be immune compromised or, or have some other condition. So the more we can enhance and strengthen and, and reinforce those indirect effects, the better we all do. And do you think uh, that there's been some debate, and I don't want to put you on the coals politically, obviously, but there has been some debate uh, over the last couple of days just about incentives with vaccinations. Um, what do you think about incentives? Because we've obviously got... We haven't got that dreadful problem that they've got in the States where vaccination take-up is sort of correlating with people's political mm. alignments, right? The more conservative you are, the less likely you are to be vaccinated. Yeah. We don't have that dreadful hyperpolarisation here that's creating that universe. But certainly in our Guardian Essential poll, there's a, there's a pretty static cohort in that poll who are saying I won't be vaccinated mm. and it's somewhere sort of say between 10 and 15% of the population mm. just saying never ever. Um, maybe you never get them but for the, the hesitant yep. as opposed to the anti-vaxxers, what do you think about incentives? I'm not yeah. asking you about it. Look, I, I'm not a social scientist, but all my social science colleagues believe in communication <laughs> and, and growing trust. So, um, you know, I think there are many, many strategies to do that. I'm not sure that, that financial rewards are actually a great builder of trust. Um, they certainly mm. can be, you know, I mean, we, we do tie some payment benefits um, to routine immunisation in Australia and that can be 
you know, I think it can help families to remember, but I don't think we see it yeah. as a direct cash payment in the same way. And I think, you know, it's part of that making people consider their choices. We want to make sure people have really thought about whether to be immunised or not. But um, certainly, you know, most of us are not in favour of, of mandation. Um, it's better to give populations a choice and bring them along. It's clearly vital to work through community groups and effective engagement with populations who may be harder to access or have specific cultural beliefs or other things where, you know, working with and through community leaders is is absolutely vital. Um, and then there will always be be the hardcore hesitant. So, I think understanding the many drivers of hesitancy and actually access is still, you know, the biggest reason that children in Australia miss out on vaccination in the program. It's not particularly that parents refuse, it's, it's often that people have trouble. So I think it's the support, it's the encouragement. Colleagues in, in the US, we were talking to them about the vaccine lotteries and one of them, the, the, the best one I liked was that um, the actual prize pool depended on how many people got immunised. So, you know, you were encouraged to go out and get your mates in as well because then you might win even more money. But uh, unfortunately, there, there was a, a paper published that they pointed me towards that didn't actually show that it worked very well. And I think, um, hmm. I don't know if it was a CMO, someone this week talking about it in one of the press is that, you know, there's an initial rush of interest and then it dies down. You know, it's not a true behavioural incentive. So it's not a fix. Yeah. yeah so I, I know there are. Yeah. Just let's, let's, last question I'm dying to ask. Um, be fascinated with your answer. You have been working around uh, this field for a long time. You worked through the AIDS epidemic. Like you're, you're, you're by no means a new <laughs> a new arrival on this scene. Thanks for pointing but, out my age, um, Catherine. And yes, I have had no, the AZ. I, I, I'm, I'm saying, well, well, me too. Me too. Yes. Thanks. Me yes. too. And, 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 and no, this is this is my, this is me doffing my cap respectfully <laughs> to your expertise, and that you're not a new arrival. But I'm fascinated about what you've learned over the last 12 months uh, because you've been so enmeshed in the whole public health response to all of this. What have you learned? Oh, my goodness. Now, that would be two hours or more, I think. Um, you know, look, I, I think I was incredibly fortunate to do my PhD on a vaccine program in the UK and change government policy, and that, that lit my fire. I came back to Australia, you know, we got involved in preparedness work. We helped support the H1N1 response in 2009. And that was pretty exciting. You know, people were calling us and we were providing evidence and it was being presented to committees. But to be catapulted into the response in January <laughs> 2020 yeah. and actually be sitting on public health advisory and policy committees was just um, such a privilege. And Jenny Furman, who's one of my heroes and who this country, what there's Jenny Furman and Rhonda Owen are two women who kept supporting our, our work in the preparedness phase and meant that this capacity was available and that we already had those working relationships with government. Uh, but she said to me when this started, she's a rear admiral, this is the war you've been preparing for. But to be right in the thick of it uh, on the front was not quite where I'd expected to be. But such a privilege to see. And I think the Australian community should be aware and so grateful that, you know, those committees, all the chief health officers met for two hours every day of the week, weekday, weekends. Mm, the, yeah. the Communicable Disease Network of Australia at that stage was meeting every day. That, that was four hours of my life every day, but a lot of other people yep. too. And so, you know, just to see how seriously our decision makers took the constant ongoing review of evidence, how that was fed into policy. You know, we talked to colleagues overseas and, and 
they were just amazed, really, to hear how much thought and attention went into that response. And to be able to be at the point of understanding what the emerging questions were and to be able to try and give clear advice on, well, we think we might be able to be useful on this point or that one just needs data or, you know, this is just a common sense question, to be able to help shape the questions and and when we did the modelling, to be able to bring it back and see if it was useful and keep refocusing our efforts and trying to communicate things better you know, I've learned so much more about how to do my job um, and, mm. and to try to make it useful. And um, it's brilliant to be able to have this incredible team of people nationally who are actually doing this work, both competent and nice and work beautifully with each other under pressure. And boy, they've been under pressure for the last month. Um Hmm. to also be able to bring them along and understand better how to make their work useful and relevant and and to get the feedback on on how we're doing. So, yeah, modelling is a piece of evidence that fits into the policy process. We've actually seen that happening live. And, you know, this last piece I thought was beautiful. I don't know anywhere else in the world where... Yeah, the infectious disease modelling has been paired with a treasury economic analysis at this level. And then it's very clear, you know, here's a decision that needs to be made. Here are various pieces of supporting evidence. How does this fit into our context and structure? Uh, and just to see that evidence-informed policy process unfold. I think it's it's brilliant. Mm. And, a, and a hopeful note to end on, which is important, I think, particularly at the moment. So, Jodie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think uh, given that we're on this, uh, you and I are on, on the, you know, the war, the war <laughs> for the long haul, um, we may reconvene that would be um, a pleasure. Uh, down the track <laughs> and, and see, see where we're at. Uh, stay healthy and stay hopeful, everyone who's listening. Um, you know, this conversation is about transparency, but it's not about driving people to the brink. It's it's just about informing you as best we can. Uh, thank you to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni, and to Alison Chan, who will cut this episode. Thank you to all of you for listening. Really do appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.